Welcome to Donor Conception Conversations. This is the one podcast that's created exclusively for people who are pursuing donor conception or have donor-conceived children. I'm your host, Lisa Schumann. As a researcher, therapist, and an expert in donor conception, I'm passionate about helping people on their donor conception journey. After decades of work in the field, working on site at some of the best fertility clinics, and through my group, the Center for Family Building, I have run workshops for donor-conceived children and have met with thousands of donors and recipients. I can share the tools and the truths I have learned to help you get the information that you need to have a better path to parenthood or help you tackle tough parenting issues. If it's about donor conception, we are going to talk about it. I hope you enjoy the episode. So today, I'm honored to have Gail Sexton Anderson. She's dedicated her career to helping intended parents from all walks of life. She holds a master's degree in counseling from Harvard Graduate School. And after graduate school, she joined a research group in the psychology department of Yale University. Then she joined a group of researchers in pediatric neurology at Yale, doing developmental testing on children born prematurely with very low birth weight. So if that's not impressive enough, she's also started Donor Concierge and has worked with many, many programs and is able to now bring her calm and thoughtful disposition to her work. She's also started a group called Tulip, which she'll talk to you a little bit about. And in her life, she's been married since 1984 and has two wonderful children. And having the privilege of being a parent has also shed light for her on how important it is to help others bring their families into the world. So with that, I'm going to let Gail introduce a little bit uh, about her group, Donor Concierge and Tulips group as well, and a little bit about her and her perspective and what she sees happening in the world of donor conception. So welcome, Gail. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So a, a little bit about me, as Lisa's already shared sort of what my background is. And I think being a parent has given me a real heart for helping people to you know, create their families. And what I found, I, I've worked in this field for almost, I don't know, getting close to 30 years now. It's a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what I found when I first got into the, this field, and I was working within an agency, I found that it was really hard for intended parents to, um, when they can't uh, have a family using their own genetics, you know, to kind of let go and be able to find someone that they could be comfortable with. So what started out as me trying to help them find someone, you know, through looking through the donors that you know we had in whatever agency I was working with and sharing with them, you know, possible candidates, if they couldn't find someone at a certain point, I'd say, well, these are some other agencies that I think are, you know, reputable and why don't you take a look at the donors that they have? Often people would come back to me and they would say, I finally found a donor. I really appreciated talking to you. And, you know, the donor was probably not, you know, may not have been from the agency I was with. But what I got satisfaction from was helping them to find someone because I didn't like the idea of like, choose who we have, or you apparently don't really want to be a parent. And sometimes that would be the feeling that the intended parents would get, even going to the clinic if they have their own database was here we have these donors and, oh, you can wait two years to work with this donor. It was just something that was very, very difficult for intended parents and they might get discouraged and just, you know, walk away. That's how Donor Concierge got started. First, it was three agencies that I was working with and it was 10. And then, you know, now we work with, you know, probably close to 100 different agencies just for egg donation. And, you know, there are about 
200 agencies out there for surrogacy, and we work with probably 75 of those. Wow. And we help people find um, sperm donors as well. Great. So we are not an agency ourselves. Some people have described us as an agency of agencies. What we do is, is really act as an advocate and liaison for intended parents to help them move through the process, you know, first by finding possible candidates. Um, we have our own proprietary um, database. We are the only ones that have this, where all of the donors that, you know, from agencies that we work with are updated every day in this database with, of course, permission from the agencies. So like the first week of their the process is helping them to, you know, narrow it down to, you know, who are the ones that they're most interested in. And then the follow-up work to help them make sure that these candidates, you know, meet the requirements of their clinic and can travel to their clinic and all of that sort of thing. We describe the difference between uh, donor concierge and TULIP somewhat with if you are the type of person who is going to, like if you're renovating your house, mm -hmm. you know, and you're the type of person that wants to go to Home Depot and do this yourself, TULIP is for you, where you can go on TULIP. There's, you know, a, a monthly fee, very minimal monthly fee, where you can, you know, look and see who's out there. Though, if you are uh, the type of person that hires a general contractor, because we have done this thousands of times, and for any intended parent going into this, it's new, and, and there are so many ins and outs that you may not be aware of, and we are, you know, we can help you through that process. So those, that's kind of the kind of the difference between the two. Mm -hmm. So what do you see that intended parents are usually interested in when they come to see you? Usually they're interested in finding someone who kind of looks like they could fit into their family. You know, often they're looking for someone who, you know, looks like the intended mother or, you know, when it comes to same-sex couples, um, two men may be looking for someone who, you know, looks like them or their mother or, um, you know, their sister. So they're looking, basically, they're looking for someone who looks like they could fit into their family. And they also want other characteristics quite often. But it all kind of comes down to finding someone that they can relate to who kind of fits into their family. You know, they may be looking for someone who is a, a certain height, you know, certain, you know, ethnic background. They may be looking for someone who um, has, you know, certain educational qualities that, you know, or certain likes and interests because those are things that are important to them. You know, they may be like one thing could be something like, um, we love dogs. We need to make sure mm -hmm. we, you know, that she's not, doesn't have any allergies to, to dogs because right. you know? we don't want our child to not be able to be, you know, around right. dogs. So there are a lot of things. Though the most important things, of course, are that, you know, the young woman is healthy, has good fertility, is able to travel to mm -hmm. your clinic. Those are kind of the, the, the real key things that, because you could choose someone and she may seem perfect, but if she doesn't have good fertility or can't travel to your clinic, then I always say fall in like, do not fall in mm -hmm. love and choose at least three to five possible candidates because there are things that will come up that may eliminate someone. And if you kind of put all your hope in one particular individual and something doesn't work out, it can be really devastating. Well, I'm glad you raised that, Gail, because this is, you know, something that I'm, I'm always clamoring about, which is, you know, the initial impetus for choosing someone may not be the right way to kind of look at the picture, right? We may want to find a person that we fall in love with, somebody who feels right to us. I mean, I've heard so many recipients say, you know, yeah. she's the one, and that's lovely. But as many people know, we're not just getting her, right? We're getting her whole genetic pool. We're getting her 
health history and young people are healthy, but what about her family, her grandparents, and how complementary is it with the intended parents? And so how do you manage that in uh, explaining, because you need to counsel all of these intended parents about all the things that maybe they're not thinking about. And you mentioned some really good points. Some of the things that that can wind up uh, being something that they might eliminate someone who really could be a really good possibility are certain factors that they, they sometimes forget that, say, their husband or you know the, the sperm provider, whatever the situation may be, they're half of the equation. They need to also remember that they are not going to be giving birth to a clone of the donor. Right. They're getting genetics. Those genetics then mixed in with the sperm providers whose genetics are creating a whole new person. And just like you may look a lot like your sister or your mother or whatever, you're not an exact clone of either. You're a very different individual. And, you know, just because a young woman may have, you know, a nose piercing or, or you know, a tattoo or something that, that you know, you're like, oh, I don't like that. Or maybe she is bright, but didn't go to a top 20 school. Your husband is, you know, half of this equation. And the young woman is, you know, a bright, lovely person. Um, just keep that in mind that Nobel Prize winners do not beget Nobel Prize winners. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, exactly. You know, there are, there are a lot of things to think about. You know, it, it's sort of, it, it's a complicated little equation. Nothing's going to be perfect. So kind of keep those things in mind. And we can't control everything. And it's really nice to be able to feel like this feels right. And, and it's, you know, there's this little something shining in the young woman's eyes that makes you feel like she's the right one. But there are those other factors of making sure that, you know, she has really good health and has good fertility, which can be checked. So. Yes. And a lot of people aren't aware that, so, mm-hmm. of that. So thank you for, to, for raising that. Yeah. And what about with Tulip? Does Tulip offer like counseling services also, or is that really with donor concierge? Tulip doesn't offer counseling services. They do have sort of a coach that they are interacting with, which is mostly it's it's an online process because it's more like they decide who they're interested in. They can ask a few questions, you know, through the coach. And then we introduce them to the agency that is representing um, the donor and the agency will take it from that point on. And I, I would imagine in both cases, you know, you're also helping them understand all the other details like psychological screening is really important. Yeah. and. Um, making sure that the woman has um, a, you know, a good complementary idea about disclosure issues and all of those things. Absolutely. One thing that I'd say is um, new or newer from like, say, when I started in this field many, many years ago, um, at that time, you know, it was considered like no one ever needs to know, um, though I'd say that even even then, you know, we're in California California tended to be much more um, sort of progressive Open. in terms of mm-hmm. feeling like psychologically, it, it's much better that it's it's a very you know transparent process. Um, doesn't mean you're going to have your donor come to Thanksgiving dinner, but you know it's sort of like having an avenue for your child to eventually be able to you know have more information about that donor. And there's something called identity 18, or at least that's the shorthand for it that can be put into the contract. You can check with the um, the donor to make sure she's open to this idea. Because when you're going through this process, the issue is your issue. This is something that, you know, that in order to create your family, this is the, the avenue that is important for you to take. But once you have your child, then it's it's the whole family. And it is information that, that this is affecting the child and, and sort of who, you know, 
it's information they need to have because it's important. It's about them. And of course, you know, the whole family is involved with this. So that's something that I think more and more people are wanting to make sure that the donor would be open to the possibility of maybe some future contact. And do you find that more of your more of your clients rather than fewer of them are interested in that now? Oh yes, definitely. And and because it's sort of the there, you know, we were talking a little bit before we got on air that there's the myth of an- anonymity because certainly when you're you're going through um you know looking at profiles, you know, you, you don't really know, you don't have her last name, you may not even have her real name. It may just be a number. Yeah. But um you know, she is a real person out there. And with the, you know, like say 23andMe or, or a variety of other, um, you know, methods, people are able to find that, you know, they were donor conceived. So it's much better, you know, th- that you preempt that, you know, it, it's sort of like making it part of your child's story from the very beginning. And I often recommend that people do like when they're pregnant, that they sort of talk about this. And it's not because I think the child can, you know, take all this in. It's really a chance for you as the parent to get comfortable with sharing the story with your child. And if it's always part of the, you know, their story, you know, and, and when I say this, like you could put together, you know, I used to say a scrapbook. Now they have much more sophisticated books that you could put together. Yes, we have one. You know, pictures. That's right. You mm-hmm. do, yes. which is great Thank because, you. you know, it's something where kids love stories about themselves. Mm-hmm. So you create this book and then it's something that, you know, you can, even when they're very little, you can go through this. And so it's just part of their life. It's not a big secret. In fact, I know some people who have children who are like in their teens and, and the kids are kind of like, yeah, yeah, mom, I know. Right. <laughs> you know? right. Um, and it's like, it's not like they, you know, it's a, they don't care. You know, right. it's like, you're their mother, you know, it's, or, or you're their father. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it, that's so interesting. And that's good to know that there are more and more people who are interested in having open relationships with their donors. What about if we start to look at the other side? I know we're talking about the intended parents and how they're feeling and what their experience is like. What about the donors? What's your experience with your donors and how they're now perceiving their donations? Are those views changing? You know, I'm not sure if they're changing or we're much more aware of how the donor um, sees their donation. Because I think it's always been a situation, and I can say this with confidence just because in California, we've like, I used to work with a program who would have interviews, you know, like the couple would get to meet a couple of donors. We'd limit it to just two, but that way they'd kind of get a chance to meet face to face and get a sense of, you know, does this feel like a good fit? And so there were always lovely meetings. Mm -hmm. Um, They didn't have the last names, you know, that sort of thing. But I think that, that people who choose to be donors, are very much aware that, you know, this is not their child. They're not doing it to have children. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, you'll find a young woman who says, oh, I don't think I want to have kids, but, you know, I'd love to be able to help someone else. Mm-hmm. Their, their, you know, their perspective may change as they, you know, get a little bit older and meet the right person. You know, who knows? But I found that donors are, are often quite open to the idea of a future connection. And I've had people who have come back to me to say, hey, do you think you could help me find my donor? My my you know, child is now 18 years old or whatever. And you know, they're asking questions and they want to know if they could possibly have a conversation with the donor. And so I've been able to help them find the donor wow. through social media usually. And the, when I contact the donors, I'll accept one 
you know, have been very open to the idea of like, oh, I'd be happy to talk to them. Give them my phone number, give them my email address. And, you know, with their permission from both sides, if they're comfortable, I'll make, you know, an introduction, usually just an email introduction. And then they can decide from there, you know, whether they want to, you know, meet up or whatever. But I found that they've been, you know, just very thoughtful and open. And it's not the big, scary uh, thing that doctors in the past would be like, no one needs to know and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. They have to protect their, their privacy because I, I think you need to make sure that they're comfortable with it. But it's not the big issue that that has been made out to be. Yeah, I think that's so good for everyone to hear that, that there's, you know, there may be a lot of fear and anxiety around that. And there's a lot of steps along the way, right? And you probably see a number of contracts and agreements, right, where people maybe want to meet or maybe they just want to speak or maybe they want to share medical information or maybe they want to have a relationship. It doesn't have to be that this person is now going to move into your house with you. It could be a number of experiences and everyone can kind of collaborate. And I think that's what's so nice about being able to be in a situation where you can put these people together and then they can decide what kind of relationship do we want to have. It must feel very empowering for them. And interestingly enough, sometimes the kids are kind of like, because I've also heard stories from, you know, clients that um, the kids are kind of like, will you come with me? You know, like, it's like th- th- their mm-hmm. parent is the person who's raised them. So it's right. not like they're like, bye, I'm off to, you know, create a new life with, with yes. my donor. Right. You know, it's more like, here's a stranger I'm going to be meeting, your mom <laughs> mm-hmm. or dad, you know. Yeah, and it's an, a very unusual experience, right? I mean, it's it's a very unusual experience, but it again, it doesn't have to be a scary one or something that's intimidating in any way. From the donor's perspective, what do you see as their feelings when they first come in? Of course, they're they're young and um, they have to kind of grapple with the, these new concepts that they're not going to be anonymous and that they could have this relationship and that they need to put together a legal contract. And those are very mature ideas. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking far right. ahead and you know, I am the parent of two um, just post teens. I can say that you know sometimes you're you're not that mature in your early twenties, and it's hard to kind of think ahead. How do you kind of manage that and really helping them understand what they're getting into and um, what their options are and all of that? And just to clarify, because I don't have direct contact with donors now because they are working with the agencies, but the agencies do the same thing that I will talk about when I was involved in an agency which is making sure that the donors understand, you know, kind of what they're signing up for, not just the medical aspect of things, but to think through things like when I used to interview donors, some of the questions I would ask them would be, you know, if you have had any kind of, let's say, sexual abuse in your past, this may feel very uncomfortable for you, may not be something that you want to do. Would you be open to the possibility of, you know, meeting the parents at at some point or meeting the child at some point, Mm -hmm. you know, is that something that you would be open to just because you want to make sure that that they have thought through these things. One of the questions I I would often ask would be like, if you're challenged by say your parents or any of your friends of like, Oh, how could you do that? Why, why are you doing that? Would you still feel strongly about doing it? Or would that kind of make you say, Oh no, I don't think I can do that because it it, it doesn't feel like I'd be accepted or that, um, Mm -hmm. you know, that, they would be objecting and I, I can't be comfortable with making that decision. 
So those are just things that you want to make sure that they really have thought through those. And, and what I find is that most donors, obviously they are compensated and that is, you know, not a small thing, but usually they go into this with the idea of it's, I think they're attracted initially by that. Oh, great. I can pay off some student loans. But I think that to go through all of this, they also have to have sort of an altruistic um, perspective as well, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. they want to be able to help someone to create a family. I've, I've talked to a lot of young women who you know, either had a relative or a nanny or whatever, people who had had some fertility issues, and it just made them really think about it. Sometimes they've offered to be a donor for someone, and you know, maybe the, it was their cousin, and their cousin said, mm, that might be a little too close for comfort to be sitting around the Thanksgiving table after we have my child, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's just given them the, the impetus to want to help someone else. And so then they decide that they're, you know, they'd like to apply to be a donor. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I think that's good for people to know. As you, I think, know, Gail, I started an open donor program at a clinic, a fertility mm-hmm. clinic. And I found that donors very often went in with this, as you said, altruistic uh, idea about wanting to help and help someone, and then that only grew when they were open. I found very often they would say, "I met the intended parents, and I really felt like I was going through this medical yeah. procedure, and it was just going to be two weeks of medication, a little medical procedure, and it was going to be over." And now I can see the faces of these people who I'm contributing to, and it's changing their lives, and it really gives yeah. so much more meaning to me. So I really feel that it's uh, so helpful for uh, donors to have that encouragement, to be able to be open, to be able to have those experiences, because it may actually make their donation process even better. I agree, because I, you know, I've worked with donors who maybe they did not get to, you know, meet or learn anything about the intended parents and mm-hmm. say their first donation. And then maybe they have that opportunity in the next donation. They say, wow, it, it really made a big difference to me because I was rooting for them that everything would work out well. And that's also why I think it's it's important to, there are some you know clinics that are very you know, closed about letting uh, the donor know kind of what the outcome was for the, you know, the privacy of the intended parents. But I think there's closure that the donor gets and, mm-hmm. and they feel a lot of joy for the yes. couple when they know that, you know, everything worked out well and that there was a positive pregnancy. So it's something that I think can make a big difference to them. I agree. And with regard to that, do you think that the donors are also thinking about kind of the longer term implications? You started to talk a little bit about their family. This is going to move towards more openness, is going to have wider implications for lots of people because, of course, now Mm -hmm. you have the grandmother who always wanted a grandchild and maybe the donor doesn't want to have children of her own and maybe the grandmother's interested and so the intended parents have to agree to that or maybe they're going to get married to somebody later and that person's going to have an issue with it. I mean, they have to start to think about all of these things and how it's going to impact their their life and their relationships. No, I, I think that's very true. When I'm working with you know a gay male couple, who sometimes they're like, oh, well, she'll be the mother. It's like, no, you are creating a family where you have two dads. You don't want your child to be thinking in terms of like, there's something missing. There's nothing missing. Your family's complete just as it is. Yes. You know, so, and and I wrote a blog on on that, working with many of my my gay friends who are in our field, who have created families and to sort of like, how did they handle this sort of thing? So I think in the same way, I think that, 
you know, the donor may need to educate her family that, yes, I'm choosing to do this, but this is, you know, it's a very clear delineation. If it's something where their their parents see it as like, this is their, you know, their grandchild out there, they may want to rethink whether they want to be a donor because Mm -hmm. it's just, that's, you know, not a healthy perspective. I agree with you, but I also think it has to do with the match. You know, I have, right, just like you see surrogacy matches, people have to be able to agree on things. And I've seen open donor relationships where the family does want to have a relationship with the donor's family, and then Mm -hmm. other ones where they don't. And so as I think as our field, you know, continues to evolve, the donor will have more say in who she's matched with too. Now, right now it's, you know, almost kind of all one-sided, right? We have the the intended parents really looking for the right match of the donor, but the donor also, you know, may want a family who wants to be open because maybe they want to say to their grandmother, you know, this is not a relationship where we're going to have Thanksgiving dinners together. This is a relationship where I'm going to share medical information. That's it. Because that way they can really decide themselves what they want. And I agree with you. But it, as you said, it has to be something where everyone is in agreement because you don't want a situation because that could be very frightening for um, intended parents. Yes. If their idea is like, I want a donor. I don't want to be involved in, in you know, her life or her and, and ours. And it goes the other way where donors may be like, nope, I've had donors who they have big plans for what they want to do in their life. And they don't want someone coming and saying like, oh, by the way, you're responsible for me in some way. Oh, yeah. she, she's, she is not. <laughs> you know, so, yes, exactly. Yeah. I've seen donors who say, I want to travel the world. You know, I'm happy to be in touch for, with medical information, but I really want to go and travel and live in Peru or live in, you know, Cambodia or wherever. And I want to have this life, separate life, you know, and I don't want to have that involvement. So it's very interesting to see how how um, all of these things are evolving and how mm-hmm. the donor's opinion is really going to impact, just like we see now, I think, in surrogacy, right? The surrogate and the intended parents really have to be on the same page about so many things in order to be matched. Absolutely. Which, of course, that is a much more interactive um, relationship because usually when it's a surrogacy situation, the intended parents are in regular contact with their, their surrogate and they have, you know, a match meeting to kind of get a sense of, you know, is this a good fit? Uh, am I comfortable, you know, with the other party? So it is very much, it is a much more equal process because mm-hmm. the surrogate can meet the family and decide, you know, am I comfortable with these people? Would this be a good thing for me? Because just as, you know, the intended parents have the dream of, you know, having their family, the surrogate has her dream of her journey as a surrogate mm-hmm. and the kind of relationships she wants and the kind of people that she'd feel really comfortable helping with this amazing thing that she's willing to do for them. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, for everyone out there, Gail's groups also work in surrogacy, right? You match, yes. uh, you find surrogates for people as well. And do you find that that's changing at all? They've the field of surrogacy? It has for us. And the field of surrogacy, yes, it is changing in that. Actually, COVID had a huge impact on surrogacy in that there were a lot of young women who did not want to be vaccinated for whatever reason. And intended parents often were not comfortable going forward with a surrogate who was not vaccinated, which I'm all for that she needs to be vaccinated. But it is something that created um, sort of 
a problem in terms of like there's not just not enough surrogates. And so the, the waiting times have gotten a bit longer. Something that we do at Donor Concierge, because we work with so many different surrogacy programs, is I learned a long time ago that just seeing a profile is not enough to know whether that surrogate is really going to be a good candidate. Now we review the medical records. We have someone who has been doing this for a very long time and, and used to review medical records for surrogates for, um, for a well-known clinic. And now she works for us. If a profile looks good for a surrogate, we then review the medical. We don't have set up the meeting until we have a sense that this surrogate is likely to pass the clinic, the clinic that the couple is working with, because we also are working with the clinic to mm -hmm. find out what, is there anything beyond sort of the, the usual ASRM guidelines that are important to you that you want to see in a surrogate profile? And so we're looking at it, um, you know, from that perspective. So we only approve probably out of, you know, like maybe 10% of the, you know, candidates that are shared with us because many of them, for one reason or another, are not going to pass that clinic's um, criteria. Mm -hmm. So we are not sharing them with our clients until we know that this is a candidate that is most likely going to be approved by the clinic. And then we will make the, that introduction because we don't want you know, when, once they have that uh, sort of meet and greet, there is the, you know, kind of the bond that starts yes. of, of feeling like, oh, she's great. And then if, if something comes up, it can be devastating to find out, yeah. you know, that she just doesn't qualify. So it's something where we're taking those steps. And because we work with so many different agencies, we're able to usually match our clients in a more efficient way because we're sort of aggregating you know, the possibilities, reviewing these and then saying, here's a candidate. And, and we're also taking into consideration what, of course, the intended parents are hoping to find, you know, in a surrogate. A lot of what we also do is just educate the intended parents because there are times when, you know, someone might say, oh, I want a surrogate who lives only an hour away from the clinic. I want, you know, and they have a whole list of things. Right. If they have a very long list of, of their must-haves, they may not be able to find someone that's going to be a fit. So we will talk to them about the possibility of, of you know, many surrogates, most surrogates will fly and travel uh, to go to your clinic. So they don't have to be in your backyard and probably you're not going to find someone in your backyard because there are so many different things that are going to be more important than location. Mm -hmm. It's more important that, that you know, you're working uh, with a surrogate that lives in a state where you're not going to run into legal problems. And Especially we help now. Our, our intended parents be aware of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So you just want to make sure that, you know, and, and we're here to kind of help with all of that, to make sure that they're not, you know, choosing a surrogate in a state where they could run into legal issues. Yeah, there's so much to think about. And uh, I could talk to you all day, Gail, but we do have to wrap up now. So and it's been so nice to to have you here. You know, um, Gail and I have known each other for a lot of years. And it's so nice to see the whole field evolve in such a positive way. And for us both to be able to be on this journey together, it's really wonderful. So um, I appreciate you sharing with us everything um, that you've shared today and your insight and knowledge is really valuable. So anyone who wants to ask Gail questions, please feel free to reach out to her. Where can people reach you? They can reach me at gail at donorconcierge.com. That's my email. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming. And 
Thank you, everyone, for joining us. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to Gail. You can feel free to reach out to me at familybuilding.net. And certainly, please subscribe because that's how you can make sure that you don't miss any of these episodes. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.